Christianity perpetuates this myth that everyone is monogamous and capable of monogamy and capable of being married and capable of keeping all those vows. Well, it's just not true. I assure you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with living with and sleeping with, cohabitating, commingling, and reproducing with someone you're not married to. You can be just as happy, feel just as fulfilled, feel just as secure in a relationship with a partner, whether you have that band of gold on your finger or not. A lot of how we perceive marriage and the very concept and notion of monogamy all come from religious sources. I'm not trying to talk you into it and I'm not trying to talk you out of it. All I'm trying to do is get you to think about it. Don't let other people make decisions that are going to steer the course of your life, especially not when that advice comes from behind a pulpit. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. By the power vested in me by simple common sense, I now pronounce you free to decide if marriage is really for you. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we're going to be looking at the pros and cons of getting married. Spoiler alert, the second column is far more densely populated, but there are advantages that we're going to look at too, because on this show, we always like to see both sides of arguments like this one. We're going to get into that conversation in just a few minutes, but first, this week, we are going to forego Christians behaving badly and talk for a few minutes about why we were off radar for a few weeks. It has been a trying time yes. in this house, and most of it revolves around one thing. Yeah. On September 2nd, we lost our little Pagu. Yeah. Muggsy died just shy of his 12th birthday. Yeah. That was this week, and uh, it's not like it was something that we were completely taken by surprise over. He had been in wind down mode for right. quite a while. You know, I started noticing certain things maybe about a year back. Yeah. But I chalked it up to age because I know that they don't live that long. Right. But even when you know, even when you know that these animals are not going to be in your life forever, you're not prepared no. for when they go. Really? No matter what you know about their lifespans, what you can expect, it always takes you by surprise. And this little guy took a very, very, very bad turn. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, it happened over the course of months. But right. there were certain things that they gave me certain glimmers of hope. You know, when he was motivated, yeah. he had energy. Yes. And he was still mugs. But he had slowed down quite a Definitely. bit. He was carrying himself a lot tighter. Mm -hmm. He wasn't moving as fast, but it didn't seem like he was slowing down that much until maybe like, the last couple of weeks. Yeah. The last couple of weeks. And it, it happened really fast. It did. He got sick and he got sick very, very quickly. And I knew when we put him in that car to take him to the vet, I knew that he wasn't going to come home. And we sat there for a good hour and a half while they poked him, prodded him, did whatever it was they were doing to him back there. Right. And the news that we got back just wasn't good. He had diabetes. Yeah. 
he had a blood sugar level of 700 when we brought him in. Right. And this is a dog that did not get fed table food. He didn't eat people food like at all. Once in a while, he got a little bit of a treat, but they were treats that were appropriate for dogs. Some chicken, some egg, stuff like that. Right. Some rice when he when his tummy wasn't feeling great. That was the extent of it. So we had him on a good diet. We were doing what we believed to be right for him to make mm-hmm. sure that his health stayed where it was supposed to be. And in the beginning, we did a lot more of that. We yeah. gave him a lot of table food. We got him a little bit too used to it. And then we kind of cut him off cold turkey like several years ago, yeah. more, more than several years ago oh, at yeah, this point. Definitely. And all of that was to just try to help ensure that he had as much time as he could. But those last couple of weeks, it started getting scarier and scarier. Yeah. And the morning that we decided to take him in, he could barely stand up on his own anymore. And we could tell that he was in agony. It's only three steps to get outside to do his business, but he just, he, he would stand there and stare at those steps because he knew it was going to hurt to go up and down. Yeah. So we started helping him go up and down the stairs, but that really didn't provide him with a whole lot of comfort either. The day before we brought him, I had him outside and there's a specific place or a couple of specific places that he likes to go to do his business out in the backyard. And they're all in the back of the backyard. So on any normal day, he would have just made his way back there, done what he needed to do and come back inside. That day, he was literally stopping, sitting, or lying down to yeah, rest. he was so tired. He was exhausted, and I hated seeing him like that. And I just knew, unless there was some kind of a miracle right. where there was some kind of treatment that we didn't know about that he needed, and now he's going to get that treatment, and he's going to be okay. Well, the problem is that, well, there were two problems that yeah. were existent here. Number one was that the diabetes took him so quickly. Yeah. And when you are that kind of a senior pug, Mm. once your body has gone through what his was going through with this, you're kind of at a point of no return at that point. There are so many things that diabetes does to the body. Right. It affects so many of the organs, and that was pretty much what they told us. They didn't counsel us to put him down. But what they did tell us was that he was not likely to regain his quality of life, that even if we were to go through the kind of treatments that they were suggesting for him, number one, he would have been miserable through the whole thing. Oh, definitely. And I didn't want for the last six months or so of his life for him to be cowering whenever I came near him because he knew that he was going to get jabbed with a needle or something else unpleasant was going to happen to him. Yeah. There's a big difference, in my opinion, between living and surviving. So we made the decision that his living days were done. We could help him survive Mm -hmm. for maybe another six months or a year. But number one, what his body was going through at that point had such an impact on him. And they, they just told us point blank, this is probably not the end of the issues that you're going to see with him and all of the things that diabetes can do to you when it goes unchecked. And I don't really feel like it went unchecked. It's just that it appeared so out of the blue 
And it just flat out took him. And there were other things. There were signs that he could be precancerous. There were signs that there were already other things that were happening. And they told us that we needed to be prepared for other major health issues. Oh, yeah. And I didn't want to think about my dog spending his last days in misery. If there was any possibility that they could have treated him and given us Muggsy back, yeah. then I would have paid anything. Oh, sure. I would have done what I needed to, to to make him well. But, you know, they, they have a way of talking and saying things where they kind of leave it to you to read between the lines. <laughs> yeah. And that was the situation with that conversation. I had the doctor on speaker in the, in the car, and every word that came out of her mouth just said the same thing. This is not worth it. It's not worth what he will go through to try to give him that little bit of extra time. If we were going to give him extra time, I feel like it should have been happy time. And I could not see that dog being comfortable or happy or anything with what his body had already gone through. So we made the very difficult decision to release him from the pain that he was in. And, uh, it was a tough decision. Yeah, I'm was... still not 100%. I've reached what I believe to be the acceptance stage of this. And just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, not everybody goes through all of the grief stages. I don't think that there was a point where I was angry. No. I don't think there was a point where I was doing a whole lot of bargaining. But there were definitely thoughts of, oh my goodness, if I had only done this, if I had only done that. And uh, honestly... It's, you, you have to come to grips with the fact that they're animals. They can't tell you what's going on with them. They can't describe the pain that they're in. And if Muggsy could have done that six months ago, we might have been able to catch this early. But the bottom line was he was still himself for the most part until the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And it just, we, we couldn't, we couldn't put him through what they were describing, the the treatments that they were describing, what he was going to need, the daily care that he was going to need, knowing full well that we've got three adults in this house that work and yeah. the amount of time that he spends alone. And would be awful. You know, in, in the state that he was in, it wouldn't, it would, it would have been beyond awful. It would have been cruel yeah. to leave him alone for the amount of time that we would be out. And if anything went wrong while we were out, I don't think I could forgive myself for that. Yeah. You know, I, we, we brought him sooner than what I wanted to. I wanted to see how things went and maybe if he started eating again a little bit or if there were any signs of improvement whatsoever, because he's gotten into poke berries and things like that. And he's been very lethargic and, uh, and we've, we've seen these sorts of things with him before, right? but not to this extent and not for this long. And that was what the real deciding factor was. And in this this COVID-ravaged dystopia that we live in, it was next to impossible to get a vet to see him. Yeah. Until we were at emergency level with this. So we wound up taking him to an emergency vet. And at that point, you know, it was just it was just flat out too late. There were a couple of things a couple of months ago too. That after going back and forth with a couple of different animal hospitals and being turned away at all of them, I decided, okay, well, I guess I need to be his vet and Uh tried to take care of certain things that I was seeing. And he did 
actually start doing a little bit better with what I was helping him with. Right. But it didn't change the fact that this was already going on inside him Mm -hmm. and it was already ravaging him from the inside out. And he wasn't Muggsy anymore. And it was difficult to say the least to watch what he was going through. So that's why, and honestly, I was in such a bad headspace at the end of that. I said to Shell, you know what? I think we're just going to take the month of September off. I'm going right. to, I'm going to eventually when I can drag myself in front of that mic and do it, I'm just going to let people know what's going on and say, see you in October. But like I said before, I'm, I'm not over this by any stretch, Oh no! but at the same time, the emotions have settled to the point where I feel like I can actually concentrate a little bit more on this. I honestly don't know how great an episode we're going to produce tonight. I'm relying on my editing skills to make it better than I'm certain that it's actually going to be. But that's why we pulled the disappearing act. And we appreciate that you downloaded this episode after us being away for a while and that you're still interested in the things that we have to say. And just for the record, everything that we talked about during our episode about bereavement hallucinations. Oh yeah. These are real things. Yes, they are. They're very real things because my brain has told me that I've heard the pitter patter of puggy feet (laughs) on the hardwood. It has told me that I've heard noises from downstairs when I'm upstairs and just sort of stirring from sleep. And on more than one occasion, I've gone downstairs and right out loud said, Muggs, you want to go out? Yeah. Because it's just such a thing that's ingrained. And I'll be sitting there on the couch and I will see things out of the corner of my eye. You see, the the thing is, Muggsy was here for almost as long as we've been here. Right. We bought this house in 2009 and we got him in 2010. So for that entire time, since Liam has been like nine or 10 years old, this dog has been part of the equation. So our brains just expect certain things. Right. And every now and then, You do see things, you do hear things, but I have no misconceptions about where my dog is. Um, I even said when I put up that announcement on social media, I said, please do not come back with any kind of comments about rainbow bridges or doggy heaven or anything along those lines, because we know how final this is. And I can tell you precisely where my dog is right now. He is in a stately looking box on a nice table that I bought to create a little memorial for him. Mm -hmm. And that is where he is. And that is where he will remain. And I have no misgivings about him still quote unquote being with me, even though I've gone as far as to feel him sitting right next to me on that couch. And I put my hand over and there's nothing there. It's all just reflexive. It's all, it's all my brain expecting certain things to be a certain way. It's like having a phantom limb. You mm-hmm. get a you get an amputation and you still feel it. Yeah. It's like, okay, the dog's here, right here next to me. No, he's not. No, he's not. And there there are other weird little things that have happened, you know, only a day later when I was out, I guess I was at work. I mean, where else the where where the fuck else do I go at this <laughs> point? But all I remember is leaving the house and then coming back and noticing how different it smelled 
in yeah. here. There's a different smell in this house now. There's a completely different energy. The cats, I think, are taking it in stride, even to the point where one of our cats, who was never all that social, mm-hmm. is now around us all the time, whether or not she's confused and seeking comfort or whether it's just that Muggsy was never quite her taste and he really wasn't. But now we're seeing her more and she's kind of filling in a little bit of a void where he used to come over and want his pettings. And now she has kind of taken over that role. So, you know, it's, it's good therapy, especially for me, it's good therapy because now I have some place to put those affections and emotions and whatnot. And it makes it a little bit easier, not much, but a little. It's a very difficult and very odd and strange set of emotions yeah. because he was, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was a dog, but he was kind of like our kid too. Of course. And, you know, it, I don't think that it had the impact. And I, I know that it didn't have the impact that losing a child would, but losing something that innocent and childlike yeah. and watching him deteriorate and knowing he was in pain and knowing that we could do nothing about it was very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So before we get into our main topic, I'm not going to go through the whole Patreon thing at this point. You guys know where our Patreon is. If you want to thumb us a couple of bucks, fantastic. We'll get back into the asking money thing in the upcoming weeks. But for right now, before we proceed with the rest of our episode, could you just join me for a moment of silence while we remember mugs? Thank you so much. Now, I do want to let you know that we, we are definitely keeping things on track at this point. I totally and completely expect that this is going to have some consistency going forward and into the end of the year. And next week, as promised, we are going to be bringing you our review of the movie Resurrection with Ellen Burstyn and Sam Shepard. Really interesting take on the whole concept of divine healing. Those of you who have seen it know why we chose it. If you haven't seen it, well, good luck. It's kind of hard to find. It's on the Roku channel right now. And there's also a bootleg copy of it out on YouTube. So there are ways that you can actually see this. But it's not as accessible as a lot of movies out there. And then we've got Unbound October completely mapped out at this point. And again, we got five Sundays in October this year. (laughs) So we have to bring the creepy five times. (laughs) And we're going to start out with two weeks on the subject of divination, beginning with a discussion about mediumship, particularly those charlatan mediums who prey predominantly on grief. But we will look at other subjects and the ways that they wrote people in and make them believe that they know things that they don't. And after that, we're going to be talking about, you know, basically parlor mediumship, tarot card reading, crystal gazing, palmistry. We're going to get into all of the psychology of what happens during a reading during that episode, too. And after that, we're going to be doing an episode with the working title, The Satan Sellers Hall of Fame. We're going to be talking about some of the more nefarious figures that kind of churned up the satanic panic in the Uh, 80s. And you've heard these names before on the show, but we're going to talk in depth about a guy named Mike Warnke. We're going to talk in depth about a guy named Bob Larson. 
And then I'm going to set my crosshairs on a guy named Gary Greenwald, who <laughs> at one point motivated me and a lot of other people to smash their entire music collection because everyone from Iron Maiden to Jefferson fucking Starship was clearly satanic. Oh, clearly. And we talked a little bit about this. We did an episode way, way back on the satanic panic, but I want to kind of steer the conversation in these specific directions with that episode and just talk a little bit about how some of these things affected us when we were in the midst of it in the and particularly in the 80s that's where most of this started and the juggernaut has continued it's just not as visible but it's taken on other forms over the years and we're going to talk about that too and then finally On the eve of Halloween, we will be bringing our next movie episode, wherein we will take apart the Amityville Horror. Working title for that one is The House That Hype Built, because (laughs) even right there on the cover of the book, it says based on a true story. Well, there's not a whole hell of a lot of truth to this story, and we're going to go through the movie, and in this instance, not just do the scene-by-scene thing, but also make some commentary on the things that were known to be complete bullshit when the movie was made. (laughs) And incidentally, this house has had subsequent owners who have never seen any such thing happen in the house. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit too during that episode. But the movie is kind of the centerpiece. And I think that will be a fun one to, um, to lead right into Halloween with. So that is what we have for you over the next few weeks. And again... It's been a trying couple of weeks, but I'm glad to be back behind the mic. And I'm glad that my head is in a place where I can just remember Muggsy and it be a little bit more fond at this point and a little bit happier because there were a lot of happy times. There were some times where I wanted to wring his little neck, but I mean, that's any dog and that's any dog dad. But, uh, But at the same time, these things teach you things about yourself and they change you. And I feel like there are things about me that have changed in the course of this process, because this is the first time death has struck this close to me in well over a decade. And I honestly was not prepared for what it was going to do to me. So thank you for understanding that we've been away. It took me this long to just drag myself in front of this mic to get this, uh, to get this going again. And I do hope that Um, that you walk away from our main topic tonight with just a little bit more of an education about why you should or maybe not get married. Let's get into that right now. So how long has marriage actually been a thing? I'm going to read a quote from an article that I found on theweek.com and, uh, This actually, I don't know why it surprised me, but it actually did surprise me. They say the best available evidence suggests that marriage is about 4,350 years old. For thousands of years before that, most anthropologists believe families consisted of loosely organized groups of as many as 30 people with several male leaders, multiple women shared by them, and children. As hunter-gatherers settled down into agrarian civilizations, society had a need for more stable arrangements. The first recorded evidence of marriage ceremonies uniting one man and one woman dates from about 2350 BC in Mesopotamia. Over the next several hundred years, 
marriage evolved into a widespread institution embraced by ancient Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans. But back then, marriage had little to do with love or with religion. And that is significant. When I read through this the first time, it's like, so the world was just one big mishmash of polycules. Basically. A bunch of people who were all cohabitating and commingling and just making more and more people as they went. And that was it. The concept of monogamy was not part of our species when our species was young. It's a concept that we have heaped upon ourselves over time and for various reasons, most of them religious. And I always say it's amazing to me, but it's not amazing to me because I know the level of influence that certain religions, especially Christianity, have had on society. And a lot of how we perceive marriage and the very concept and notion of monogamy all come from religious sources. And Christianity perpetuates this myth that everyone is monogamous and capable of monogamy and capable of being married and capable of keeping all those vows. Well, it's just not true. That's why some studies will place the numbers as high as 60% of men and 40% of women will eventually stray from their marriage. They'll cheat. And that's just the way that it is. And the reason for that is that not as many people are wired for monogamy as society wants us to think that they are. And a lot of people, they just get convinced that this is the right thing to do. It's the right way to go about managing this kind of a relationship. And they do things that in the context of the relationship are wrong, but in the context of their psychological makeup, basically are inevitable. In a lot of situations, they're just inevitable because there are very, very few people out there who are truly monogamous, who can truly be satisfied with having just one partner for life. And that is the type of thing that marriage thrusts upon you. So when we go through the, uh, the reasons why and reasons why not, just kind of bookmark that a little bit. So if marriage in the beginning was not about love or religion, what was it about? The primary purpose of marriage was quite simply to bind women to men. Note the language there. To bind women to men and thus guarantee that a man's children were truly his biological heirs. This became much more of a big deal when we stopped being hunter-gatherers and started creating actual societies. All of a sudden, it became more about status, and it became about, look at all these people I can make. And to put it plain and simple, through marriage, a woman became a man's property, and there are still loud echoes of this today. Oh, gosh. Very, very loud echoes, and not just in evangelical circles, because we know what kind of misogynistic bullshit comes out of that religion. But society in general has embraced so many misogynistic principles when it comes to what relationships between particularly men and women are supposed to look like. You really start getting a good idea of how much that kind of thinking has permeated the culture, even to the point where if you aren't particularly religious, you are likely to believe that monogamy is the right choice and that being married in some way legitimizes things like your children. I hate that term illegitimate when it comes to children mm. and, and, and some of the other pejoratives yeah. that focus on that. If you do a little bit of study on our language and certain words that are out there, the word bastard, what does that mean? It means someone who was born to parents who aren't married. 
Right. Okay. That word has always been a pejorative. So we've been trained for a long, long time to look at these things from a very negative standpoint, when in reality, it's not that big a deal whether or not you are married when you decide to have children. Now, right. there are plenty of people out there that really should think twice about that, too. Maybe we'll do a separate episode on that one. But you know, for the purposes of this conversation, there's nothing wrong with two unmarried people having a family together. No, of course not. But society has taught us for eons that it is, and that's a problem. But back to the whole concept of the woman being the man's property. In the betrothal ceremony in ancient Greece, a father would hand over his daughter with these words. Oh, just brace yourselves, people. I pledge my daughter for the purpose of producing legitimate offspring. There's that fucking word again. Mm. Now, among the ancient Hebrews, men were free to take several wives. Just think about the double standard that's at play there. And also think about that the next time one of your evangelical friends starts talking to you about what traditional or biblical marriage is. Because with all due respect, there are so many different definitions of what biblical marriage actually is. Which one are you going to pinpoint and focus on here? So men were free to take several wives. Married Greeks and Romans were free to satisfy their sexual urges with concubines, prostitutes, and even teenage male lovers while their wives were required to stay home and tend to the household. So sex for offspring happened with your wife. Sex for fun happened with whoever the fuck else you wanted to do it with. So that was what it looked like in ancient Greece. Now, now, if wives failed to produce offspring, their husbands could give them back and marry someone else. You could literally return your wife for a refund if she was perceptively defective. Only one problem. Mr. Manly Man could just as easily be the reason why she wasn't conceiving. But of course, of course they, they, no one thought about that because the men just shot little babies out of their penises and they grew up inside of a woman. And if they didn't grow up inside of a woman, that was her fault. Yeah, It wasn't his. He was doing his job and doing it right 100% of the time. So yeah, you could return your wife for a fucking refund mm. if she didn't get pregnant soon enough. That's the history. This is These are the building blocks for what we experience today and some of the thoughts and attitudes that are perpetuated today. We haven't strayed far from a lot of this. No, we, we really haven't. Nope. And it's uh, it, it's just like, like I've said about so many other things on this show, there are certain things that are still right, right here in plain sight, right here in front of us right now today in the year 2022. It's just that we put more of a cushion mm -hmm. on some of this than these people did. And there are men who divorce their wives all the time because they can't get pregnant. Remember our review of Dogma? Oh, yeah. Well, that was Bethany's issue. Her husband right. left her because she couldn't conceive. So these kinds of attitudes are alive and well in the year 2022. Make no mistake about that. Now, monogamy may seem central to marriage now. But in fact, polygamy was common throughout history, just like we talked about a minute ago. From Jacob to both King David and Solomon, biblical men 
often had anywhere from two to thousands of wives. King Solomon in particular was a major, major player. Uh, yeah. Of course, though, polygamy may have been an ideal that high-status men aspired to. You see, it was actually posh to have a lot of wives, okay? Right. It made you manly to have a lot of wives. Most men who weren't kings, who didn't have a lot of influence, usually had one wife. Right. And that wasn't for any real biblical reason. It was just because that was what they could afford. Right. You know, that, and, and if you could afford to have a thousand concubines, then bring it on. <laughs> but, but for the average person, it was a matter of how many people can you really support? And if the answer is my wife and whatever children show up, then you only had one. But it had nothing to do with any kind of moral code. All it meant was that you didn't have the means to have as many women as these other guys did. And that was it. In a few cultures, one woman actually married multiple men. But we're talking a precious yeah. few cultures where the roles were flip-flopped. And uh, there have also been some rare instances of group marriages, which honestly I think goes more back to the roots of our species, right. where you had communities that were all doing whatever with whoever, and more people just kept popping up. It's more of a return to those roots. Now, here's a little quote from an article from Live Science called uh, The History of Marriage. And we're going to shoot way ahead on the timeline now and talk a little bit about colonial America. When colonists first came to America at a time when polygamy was still accepted in most parts of the world, the husband's dominance was officially recognized under a legal doctrine called coverture, under which the new bride's identity was absorbed into his. This is where we get the tradition of the woman taking the man's last name. And guess what? It's still a thing, mm -hmm. but it's becoming less common. Yeah. One of my friends from high school actually took his wife's name. Oh, yeah. I've seen which that. Which is, you know, I hadn't heard of anybody really doing that very much. And I know of at least one person who, uh, when she got married the second time, they combined the names. Yeah. So it was half his name and half her name. And I thought that was kind of a neat thing because yeah. with all due respect, it doesn't take a whole hell of a lot to change your name. No, it really in, doesn't. In an instance like that where both of you have to do it, we're talking in most locales, it's it's a form and somewhere between anywhere from 25 to 100 bucks. And yeah. you can legally change your name to whatever you want. But I've noticed this in my business. Most of the parents that I deal with are in fact married. But I see a lot more often now where mom still has her name. I know of plenty of married people who never change their names. Married women in particular who never change their names. They are legally married, but they have maintained their identity. And I do think that that's a very good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you changed your name only because it, it wasn't a thought in our head to do it any other way. It just right. seemed like that was the thing to do. And I don't think that it's had any real detrimental effect on you, but I also don't see any reason why at this stage in my life and the way that I think about things now, I don't see any reason why it was necessary. Yeah. You know, oh. It's just a thing. And it we was... did it because that's what society told us to do. Exactly. 
And it may shock you to learn that the modern definition of marriage is only about 250 years old. It's not even older than our country people, okay? <laughs> it was only about 250 years ago when the concept of marrying for love or because you found your emotional match started gaining traction. For the first time in history, people were widely getting married expressly because they were in love. It was even more recent, though, that mutual attraction in marriage really emerged as the be-all, end-all reason for getting married. In fact, in Victorian England, many unenlightened and most likely male individuals perpetuated the ridiculous notion that women didn't have strong sexual urges at all. Guys, just because you can't make her come doesn't mean that she doesn't like sex, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm just putting that out there. Now, obviously it's true of some, but it's true of some men too. Today, we have a name for it, and it's called being asexual, and it is okay. And guess what? Asexual people get married, but they get married for different reasons than what would be considered traditional. And a lot of people these days are getting married for reasons that are not exactly considered traditional. Right. And we're going to talk about a couple of those in just a minute. But some of you, I'm sure, are sitting out there saying, but what's the point if it isn't about love or if you don't like sex? Well, there are quite a few very good reasons that you might want to take the plunge. So we're going to talk about the pros first. And honestly, there's absolutely nothing on any of the lists that I found that highlights anything about emotions or love or sex as being positives in terms of why you should get married. I'm going to be drawing pretty heavily from one article on a website called thenot.com, the K-N-O-T, as in tying the. Yes. And most of the benefits to getting married are not spiritual. They're not emotional. Most of the benefits are actually just legal and nothing more. Honestly, it doesn't really go far beyond that. So let's talk just a little bit about what you get for being married, at least <laughs> at least in America. And, and it's true in other parts of the, of the world, too. But we're going to talk about where we live. So in America, if you are married, it brings along with it certain tax benefits. So you get the uh, marital tax deductions. So, you know, if you're filing just an individual return, you're not likely to get as much money back or retain as much of the money that you make as you do if you are married and filing jointly. It's always a very good idea yeah. to file a joint tax return. Social security benefits are another thing. Just for the sake of example, if either you or your spouse don't qualify for your own social security benefits, you are actually entitled to receive the other spouse's benefits which is interesting. It's not an immediate payoff. You do have to be at least 62 years old, or you have to have a child that you're caring for who can also receive benefits and is younger than 16. But you can also potentially receive other benefits too. You can also potentially receive Medicare disability veterans benefits, military pensions, even some corporate pensions and other benefits through your spouse. That was my grandmother. Yeah. Years and years and years and years of checks from the government for my grandfather's uh, veteran pension. And she got that for years. She got it until she died Yeah. because she was married to him. 
there's also the matter of prenuptial agreements, and I know that there are a lot of differing opinions on this, but in this day and age, they are a good idea, and they do provide certain protections so that if you do wind up getting divorced, it's not an open and shut case of one person takes everything and, and the other person loses everything. You decide before you get married how the marriage is going to be dissolved if it happens at all. It may be kind of a pessimistic way of looking at things, but sometimes you have to pepper your realism with a little pessimism too, because yeah. that little bit of pessimism, just like I tell the kids in the car, that little bit of pessimism can be what saves you from a lot of trouble. I refer to defensive driving that way too. It's like you're always on the defensive waiting for the other person to do the wrong thing. And it may seem pessimistic, but it will keep you alive out here. And having a prenup will keep you financially alive if something goes wrong. I think that it's a very realistic way of looking at things. And if there weren't a lot of people out there who agreed with me on that, it wouldn't be a thing. And right. it is. Individual retirement account benefits or IRAs. An IRA can be used a few different ways in the course of a marriage, including rolling over a deceased spouse's IRA into your own. This is much more difficult if you just have a domestic partnership. If you are married, it's pretty much a given that you right. can do this. It's a legal given that you can do this. There is one caveat, and that being that you have to be filing joint tax returns. But that's the only stipulation. If you're doing that, you are legally entitled to that money if your spouse dies. And then there, this to me is a big one. It's a really, really, really big one. I've said multiple times just in the last couple of years that I have no intention of getting married again if you die. You know, the more I think about this, the more it makes sense if I have another partner at that point, if I meet somebody else, regardless of what the situation is, it's advantageous to marry them because in this particular instance, when it comes to other people making decisions for you, it's way, way easier to hack through the red tape if you are married. Because if you're married, you can have the status as next of kin for things like hospital visits. And that grants you the ability to also make medical decisions for your partner in the event that they are unable to make them for themselves. It's a much, much stickier situation if you are not married. Yeah. And, you know, I think about this in terms of I'm, I'm sick and I'm in the hospital. You would be able to get in to see me no problem. What if I have another partner at that point? Right. It's going to be a lot more difficult for her to be involved in that process and be close to me at the end. And, you know, these are all things that I think about, you know, poly relationships, they do have their positives and they do have their huge negatives. And in this instance, I believe that this is a very, very big negative because you can love two people the same way and on the same level and still be separated from them legally mm. in a situation like this. So score one for traditional marriage. You can actually have your partner with you and make decisions for you. And there's like literally no red tape. As long as you've got that marriage certificate, it really does make things a lot easier. So believe me, that's something that I think about a lot these days. Health insurance, you know, there are plenty of states now that are hopping on the bandwagon of domestic partnerships and allowing unmarried people to share benefits so it's becoming more of a widespread thing. If the right has their way, a lot of that could go away too, just like all kinds of other rights that are specifically geared toward basically LGBTQ couples. 
or yeah. LGBTQ relationships. They'll come after that eventually too. But for the time being, there are plenty of places where you can be in a uh, domestic partnership and both get benefits. But it's an across-the-board rule in all 50 states that if you're married, then your spouse can share those benefits. Through your employer, you can usually take family leave if your spouse is sick or bereavement leave if your spouse dies. It's more of a gray area if you are not married to your partner. You know, there, 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 are, there are certain emotional benefits. You know, they're, and I don't know how scientific any of this is. I guess that they're, they're just looking at it from the standpoint of statistics. Married people do have a tendency to live a little bit longer. I'm, and I would assume that means that they're in a good marriage because yeah. I know plenty of people who are pretty miserable in their marriage. And I don't think that that's necessarily positively affecting their lifespans. Less chance of developing depression. Oh, I don't know. I'm pretty sure both of us are, are uh, in that yeah. boat. Increased serotonin levels. Are, are we talking about the marriage or are we talking about new relationship energy? That's, yeah. you know, it's all of these I'm kind of on the fence about. But I think that they all have a certain degree of truth. I also think that those truths are situational. They fluctuate and change with like situations and just times of life. Yeah. Or if your marriage is overall happy or overall shitty, yeah. you know, there's plenty of that going around too. But yeah, the, the last couple that they, that they talk about here, it's like, are, are we talking about two months in or are we talking about 20 years in? Yeah. Because some of the, some of the emotional highs are a little bit difficult to maintain for that long right. and they really shouldn't be maintained for that long. There has to come a point where things plateau and things become normal. So those are some of the benefits, and especially the legal stuff, most of them are difficult or sometimes impossible to pull off if you aren't married. Now that we've laid that foundation, let's talk about reasons not to get married. Now, we're going to shift from the legal end of things to more of the personal health, wellness, emotional end of this argument now. And there are so many reasons not to get married, or at least not until you know that you're ready, until you have sussed these things out, it is not a good idea for you to get married. And for a lot of people, it's not a good idea anyway. Even with all of the legal benefits that you can enjoy as part of that kind of a union, it's not always a good idea regardless of what the benefits or downsides may be. So let's look at some of these. First reason not to get married, living together at least first is way smarter. Oh, yeah. You know, learn how to live with each other. Learn each other's idiosyncrasies. Spend enough time around each other to see each other at your absolute best and your absolute worst. Get an idea of each other's quirky habits and decide whether or not these are things that you want to put up with for the rest of your life. I personally think that that's very important. And I also don't think that it's petty or wrong or anything in between to end a relationship when you figure out that these are not things that you can directly live with. As a matter of fact, I think that you're doing your partner a big favor in that regard. It doesn't feel like it in the beginning. It feels like shit in the beginning. Right. But when you look back 10, 20, 30 years at what things looked like then and what your probable relationship looks like now, you will be glad that you cut bait on all of that stuff and didn't start making excuses for why you could just live with it. That to me, I think is a very, very important thing to consider is that living together first is going to give you the answer as to whether or not this is a good idea for the both of you. Next, weddings are very expensive. 
The average wedding today costs about $36,000. And the days of the bride's father paying for everything are going the way of the dodo. Most couples pay for their own weddings, and many of them actually take out loans to be able to pay for their wedding. And I can tell you from experience, and I remember saying this, as we were driving away from our reception, I remember saying, we worked on this for a year. Yeah. And it was over in five hours. And at the end of those five hours, we had a nice ceremony. It was a very, very nice and happy occasion. We had some ziti and we had some baked chicken. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we got to see some people that we didn't get to see every day, that um, some of them we haven't seen since. Yeah. And that was definitely a nice thing, too. It was a good party. We had a good time. But it was over in five hours. Yeah. And it was like a year of preparation. And there was a good bit of locking of horns on both sides over various issues. There were certain things that your mother wanted that I just found irritating. And I do remember at one point, you know, I don't even remember what she was talking about, but I just, I just had enough. And I'm like, okay, look, I'm done with this now. And literally like maybe a couple of months before I was just like, no, fuck this. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. It wasn't that I didn't want to get married. It was that I didn't want to deal with having a wedding. Yeah. Okay. That's the difference. This is why a lot of people wind up eloping because the families turn into the Hatfields and McCoys when it comes to the wedding. It's going to be over inside of a day. Don't take it so fucking seriously. Do it in a way that's going to create a good time, but not in a way that's going to create so much goddamn stress. But... I don't think that it's just the individuals that make it stressful. I think society and what's expected of a wedding is the bigger thing that starts getting people to lock horns. Yeah. And especially if you are the bride, because the spotlight is on you as the bride. The groom is kind of along for the ride. We (laughs) rent a tux. We get a couple of our buddies to stand with us on that platform. And, you know, that's pretty much all we're going to do. We're going to show up for the ceremony. We're going to say, I do. We're going to eat some ziti and baked chicken, and then we're going to just get on with the honeymoon. But for the bride, oh my goodness, it is, it, it's like a major, major undertaking. Yeah. And society has conditioned women to believe that this is going to be the best day of your life. Yeah. And then the pressure's on to make it the best day of your life. Well, the best day of your life is going to cost money and lots of it, okay? It's expensive. And I touched on this just a little bit, but I'm going to say a little bit more about it now. Weddings are also very misogynistic, and that's another big problem with them. The notion of giving the bride away like she's her father's property to give away in the first place, taking the husband's name. To this day, weddings can have the look and feel of a transfer of property, and it starts long before the ceremony. How many men do you know who wear engagement rings, just for the sake of example? How many men wear an engagement ring? Plenty of them will wear a wedding band, but the whole notion of an engagement ring, what is that? That is an outward sign that someone else has laid claim to you. Yeah. Yeah. The very word engagement basically means that you've made a pact. 
And that means that you are not going to go off and sleep with somebody else. You're not going to have a boyfriend. You're not going to have any social life with men that is anything but 1000% platonic. And he basically owns the rights to you and your body at that point. Because he paid a lot of money, whatever fucking De Beers wants you to spend, what is it, three months salary? They say you should yeah. spend on a wedding, on, on, a, on an engagement ring? Yeah, and that seems insane to me. Oh, yeah. It's completely insane. With the good that you could do with that money and the way that having that money and spending it on the right things would start you off on this journey called marriage on much more level and sturdy footing. You know, three months salary? For real, for a ring, just so that you can tell the world that this person now belongs to me. Guess what? The whole notion of expensive diamond rings is also going the way of the dodo. Oh, of course. Because millennials and especially Gen Z have much, much more of a sense of individuality and a lot less of a traditionalist mindset. They do things differently. And they're also learning how to do things more efficiently and economically sound. Right. So the concept of a wedding is not terribly fast, but it is slowly starting to change its face. And one of the big ways that we're seeing this happen is through the concept of the engagement ring. We haven't thrown it out as a society, and I and most women are still pretty excited to get that engagement ring. Right. Um, regardless of what the undertones may be, most of them are pretty excited about it. But not as many of them demand a huge diamond anymore. No. A lot of times for younger generations, the engagement ring is a good indicator of how much this guy knows you. Right. Because if he's able to present you with something that has points of identification for you that aren't just the facets on a diamond, right? then it has a deeper meaning. And I also think that it starts moving things out of the realm of the woman being viewed as property. Yeah. And there's more of a valuation, I think, that comes with the way that the younger generation is doing things. The ring communicates, you know, I know you this well. And this is how I'm choosing to show you what you mean to me. And, you know, an, an expensive diamond may have the same effect for some people, but... I think that the personalization aspect of it is a major thing that we can learn from the younger generations. Right. Another thing that really bothers me about the concept of weddings is how centered they are on the bride. Yeah. Right down to the terminology that's used for almost everything that has to do with a wedding. It's a bridal party. It's not a wedding party. I've heard both, but you hear bridal party a lot more. Yeah. The bridal bouquet, not the wedding bouquet. You know, those are just a couple of examples, but, you know, the whole hyper-feminine motif of most weddings, we we know who it's supposed to appeal to and whose image it's supposed to augment. And it really does shine a spotlight on the bride. And that's why I think so many brides go bridezilla. It's not because that's their personality. It's because they're under so much fucking pressure to live up to their own wedding at this point that it turns some of them just a tad bit batshit. You, you went a little batshit on your, uh, on your hairdresser. Oh God. I remember, I remember you telling me that story recently. It was like, uh, this poor lady who was, you know, she did all the alterations on my dress 
And I got the headpiece and there was nothing to attach it to my head. Ah, okay. And I had absolutely no idea that you were supposed to tell people what you wanted to attach it to my head. So I was like, what am I going to do? For some reason, I was talking to the lady on the phone and I ended up just like absolutely going off on that poor woman. And I felt so terrible. I felt terrible about it. You like, you stopped being you. Yeah. And that's what this can do to people. Yeah. Because I've never seen you go off on anyone. Yeah. And again, I heard this story recently, like within yeah. the last year. Because planning the wedding, it's like it was so, so stressful. I didn't know how to plan a party, much less a wedding. Yeah. And I wasn't getting a lot of helpful information because my mom was married in 1968. Yeah. And it's like in 1968, you just called a bunch of people up, you know, and said, hey, let's, we want to get married. Here's where it is. Just. It was simpler. It was a much simpler. There wasn't anywhere near as much pressure put on anyone to make a good show out of it. But yeah, I didn't want to even think about my wedding for a while after we got married. Because I was like, it was so stressful planning the wedding that I didn't want to think about it after it was over. Because I was like. I don't want to think about all the things I did wrong. And, you know, again, I was more on the outside looking in because it's not really that much up to the groom no. to do a whole hell of a lot. There were things that my family did. Oh, sure. And yeah. there were things that I was at least marginally involved with. But honestly, my biggest responsibility was being at the venue in my tux <laughs> and ready to say I do. Basically, That yeah. was most of my responsibility. The morning of my wedding... I got up, I took a shower, I combed my hair and shaved and put on my tux. I don't think the morning looked that way for you. No. Not by a long shot. No. It was very stressful. Oh, yeah. I oh. just ugh. I just didn't know what to do with myself, honestly. Right. And I do remember being a little bit nervous because you were late, but it had to do with that headpiece thing. It, had, it was a lot to do with the headpiece thing. Yeah. And we ended up being late. Yeah. And it was... It was a lot. And I was just like, oh, what's going on here? And uh, and then finally one of my groomsmen comes back and says, you can breathe. She's here and she's gorgeous. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you were. And you were both. Weddings can be fun. There right. can be There can be good moments to them, high moments to them. But, you know, when you start taking them too seriously, and I do believe that even I took our wedding a little bit too seriously, oh, yeah. especially in the realm of things like whether or not we were going to serve alcohol and asking people to go downstairs to the bar because we didn't want it in the main hall and all, all this bullshit that was never me and that I really regret now. But I overthought certain parts of it too. Yeah. But uh, overall, it was a good day. It was just so unnecessary. Yeah. The stress of it. The planning of it, the expense of it, all very, very unnecessary. I've talked to other people who, in retrospect, look at their wedding day and say, yeah, you know what? We could have done this in a much more minimalist way and probably had a lot less stress. Oh, yeah. But society dictates that weddings look a certain way. And I heard somebody say recently that weddings bring along with them this false air of individuality when they're more about conformity than anything else. Oh, yeah. A wedding is supposed to be a certain thing. It's supposed to look a certain way. It's supposed to go a certain way. And you can fool yourself into believing that you've individualized the process. But 
when you step back and you look at that day and everything that happened, it's just like any other wedding you've ever been to. You know, it's a been there, done that sort of thing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that doesn't mean that you can't have good memories. It's just how much of it was really necessary. And I know a lot of people who, after they've spent years paying back the loans that they took out to have a nice wedding, something that lasted less than a day, I know a lot of people who have said, in retrospect, we should have done this a little bit more on a smaller scale. Yeah. But society makes the grandeur of it seem not only appealing, but socially necessary. And that's another big problem. We kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'll say a couple words about it. Weddings can divide people more than they join them together. And just like me wanting to bail out like yeah. a couple of months. And it wasn't that I want, didn't want to get married, but I was just done. And I loved your mother. But there were certain minor irritations oh, sure. that all just sort of culminated into one big glob of irritation that I couldn't take anymore. Yeah. Years and years before anger management, you know? Yeah. yeah. I feel like today I could take a little bit more of a step back on some of that stuff. But back then, oh, no. No, that wasn't something that was going to happen. And I heard a story recently about, you know, how somebody was uh, excluded from her, her own sister's wedding over differences about the dress Mm -hmm. that the bridesmaids had to wear. And the bride was so offended by her choice and her taste being questioned by her own sister. Her own sister wound up not being invited to the wedding. You know, you want to talk about causing division and whether or not it's worth it. It's going to be over inside of a day. How many times do I have to say it? It's going to be (laughs) done inside of a day. Don't take it so fucking seriously, please. I'm going to steer a little bit away from the concept of weddings now. It's just, this was something that was, it was fresh in my mind because I've heard some other content on this recently. And I'm like, you know what? This makes sense. And we need to kind of bring it up. But now I want to move on just a little bit more. Let's keep in mind that domestic partnerships are in fact a thing and they have advantages and disadvantages that we've already talked about. So I'm not going to linger on that, but just to our ex-evangelical friends or those who are on the fence, I assure you that there is absolutely nothing wrong with living with and sleeping with, cohabitating, commingling, and reproducing with someone you're not married to. There's no legal, moral, or spiritual reason why you shouldn't opt for this kind of a situation. It's just really a matter of your own personal preferences and how much work you want to do in some of the areas that we talked about when it comes to the legal end of things. You know, how much work do you want to put into that when these eventualities occur? And are you willing to give up X, Y, and Z because you're not getting married? That sort of thing. And while we're talking about the love and romance aspect of things, let's talk about divorce. And guess what? Divorce is expensive. It's in many instances more expensive than the wedding. It depends on how well both of you agree on everything and whether or not you decide to have an amicable split or whether or not you decide to stick lawyers on each other. It can be very, very expensive to dissolve a marriage. And even when things go smoothly, even when everybody agrees on everything, it's still going to cost a lot of money. How much money? Well, 
According to usnews.com, many sources suggest $15,000 as a total cost of a divorce. The legal website nolo.com suggests that the average total cost is $12,900, including $11,300 in attorney fees alone, with the rest being court fees. So that's the median. The range can also be from around $5,000 for a really quick, cheap, and easy divorce to $50,000 for a real ugly one. I can't imagine fighting back and forth with someone over things that I can just hear the cash register going off in my head over. It's like, how long do you want to go back and forth on this and let the lawyers keep hearing cha-ching, cha-ching? You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But some divorces get very ugly and they get drawn out really, really, really far, much farther than they should. And then when you have to deal with things like property splits, custody, oh my God, the things that are part of that process can be not only overwhelming, but financially devastating. So not only is is divorce expensive, it is very emotionally draining. So, you know, just try and steer clear. The emotional drain that it puts on both parties and the children and anybody else who's involved is incredibly taxing and can be devastating. It fucks up your credit. There's no such thing as a simple divorce. It will mess with your finances on a number of levels. It will make it difficult to reestablish credit. If you split and you each want to buy a house alone, it becomes more difficult. Your credit rating goes down and stays down for a while. It's just a bad situation that that it creates for you. That's most of it on the divorce end. And people who have gone through divorce could probably tell me a thousand more things. Fortunately, it's not something that I have experience with. It's not even something that I watched happen because by the time my parents were divorced, I was only three months old. So I haven't had that hit close to home for me ever. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, you're really oversimplifying it, well, that's just because I haven't experienced it. So you can add all of your own bullet points if you've been through it. And I know that there are a lot more, just probably more than we want to deal with in one episode. Um, Another reason not to get married is if you're in the middle of building your career, establishing a business, these things take a lot of your time and energy and they steer your attention away from your partner. And I do believe that it's important when you get married to have at least some kind of financial foundation. We didn't. Oh, yeah. And we didn't have for a very long time. But I do think that there are definite advantages to being established in your career, having an established business that's running well, that doesn't need your constant care and supervision like a puppy. (laughs) You know, I'm moving into that realm with my business at this point. I haven't done a 13 hour day in a while. Yeah. But uh, but I'm still basically married to the business. And it takes a lot of my time, a lot of my energy, a lot of my emotion. If we were thinking about getting married right now, I'd be putting it off for at least a year. Oh, yeah. At this point, it would just make sense to not add one more thing into the mix. So if you are in the process of building a career or starting or growing a business, you might want to just keep dating for a little while. Also, it might not be a great idea if you've been divorced already. Now, I will add this disclaimer to this one. Most second marriages that I have been made aware of have at least worked better than the first ones. You know, people, especially in our circles where you see people getting married when they're 18 and 19 years old. We weren't much older. I was 21. You were 23. 
And right. I think that that was way too young on both sides. But one thing that I have noticed with the people that we know is that most of their first marriages ended in divorce, but the second marriages worked. What you really need to do in this instance is ask yourself why the marriage failed and whether or not it's likely to happen to you again. Whether or not it has poked enough holes in your trust of other people, especially if you were like cheated on or there were other things, you found out things about your spouse that led you to believe that you just never knew them in the first place. You have to think about whether or not you want to have the risk of going through that again. But also, again, on the other side of that argument, you learn a lot through those kinds of situations. You learn a lot about you. You learn a lot about your partner's behavior, and you can spot the red flags a lot easier. If it took a big emotional toll on you, if you had a hard time just getting over the fact that your marriage ended and you aren't 100% certain as to why or whether or not you could do better next time, then at least at a bare minimum, take the time that you need when you are in a new relationship to get to understand you and your partner a little bit better than you did your first. And you might find that getting married is not the best option for you because you don't see that lifetime bond forming right now. But guess what? A year or two from now, maybe you will. It's not a never situation, but it's more of a not never, but not now right. kind of thing. You know, you, you have to be practical. And like I say about a lot of things, you have to let your intellect have the floor and look at it from that standpoint, as opposed to what might be going on in your head as a result of new relationship energy, or this person is so much different than my first spouse. I really believe it can work this time. Okay, well, believe it all you want, but you know how we feel about belief around here, okay? <laughs> See what you observe and be honest with yourself about what you observe because doing this again might work out for you. For a lot of people, it does, but it might not. And you have to be prepared for that eventuality. And you have to be honest enough with yourself in those moments when you start thinking maybe this is a good idea to step back and really, really consider what you've already been through and whether or not you are prepared to go through it again because you could. Well, here's one that I can directly relate to. You shouldn't, you, you might want to think about not getting married if you aren't wired for monogamy. And guess what? There are plenty of poly people that get married and they get married for various reasons. You know, sometimes it's just that they want that relationship to stand out from the rest, that they feel more of a bond with that person than they feel with other partners. But it could also be for some of the same legal reasons that we discussed earlier, where you've been with somebody for a while and you've established a high level of trust and you are okay with them having the decision to turn off the life support if they need to make it. You know, that sort right. of thing. But I also know a lot of poly people who get married because of love too. And that's fine too. And they, and they stand there and they get married while their other partners sit there and cheer them on. It's a thing that happens. When we're talking about a traditionalist view of marriage, if you know going in that it's going to be really, really, really difficult to deal with only having this one partner for the rest of your life, if it's not something that you are 1000% sure that you can handle, then think it through because the emotional damage that an affair can do is in many ways just as bad as the economic damage that a divorce can do and the emotional damage that a divorce can do. 
So think it through. And again, be honest with yourself. Are you capable of making a commitment to just this one person for the rest of your life? Be honest with yourself. 60% of men and 40% of women aren't. And that's why more than half of all marriages end in divorce. Because, I mean, and there are other, I mean, there's obviously there's a plethora of reasons why marriages end. But when the numbers are that high, you got to understand that that's a large deciding factor in a lot of divorces. So before you reach that place, reach a place of self-evaluation and honesty and decide whether or not you can truthfully make that kind of a commitment to another person. You may not want to get married if you are too controlling or that you fear your partner will become too controlling. You know, you see those canaries in the coal mine and they can happen on both sides of the relationship. When you see those warning signs, don't ignore them. You don't necessarily have to dwell on them, but definitely catalog them and see how things progress. You shouldn't get married. Definitely, you shouldn't get married if uh, you find the concept of marriage confining. And that goes back to the whole monogamy thing, having to adjust the way that you do certain things so that your partner is a little bit more comfortable. Guess what? You can't change people. You can try to change yourself, but you're not going to change your partner. It's, th it's just that simple. They're going to be the person that they're going to be. They may evolve into something else over the course of time, but at this stage of the game, you need to, um, you need to ask yourself what you're really, really willing to put up with here and whether or not the situation feels too confining for you to make a lifelong commitment to and be happy. Very important. Don't get married if you like the idea of casual relationships. It can become very problematic in the marriage on a number of levels. If the idea of commitment is something that leaves a bad taste in your mouth, but it's something that your partner wants, don't get married just to keep them because I promise you, you will lose them eventually anyway. Again, be honest with yourself. If you prefer casual relationships, yeah, think about this. Please just think about it before you take the plunge. Oh, and also, if all the reasons that you have for wanting to get married revolve around sex, please, I beg you, don't, okay? Yeah. Your bodies work just as well without wedding rings, and you should be able to feel free enough to do a little bit of exploring before you just settle on one person that you're going to explore with for the rest of your life. And that's why we saw so many people getting married at oh, yeah. 18, 19 years old. In evangelical circles, will you marry me basically means I want to fuck you. <laughs> that's that's most of it, especially at that age, at least at that age. It often means precious little more than that. And then you wake up next to your husband or your wife after a couple of years and you realize you don't know them hmm. because you never took the time because you were too busy thinking about fucking them to get to know them. And that's when divorces happen. So steer clear. You should absolutely not get married because people in your life are pressuring you to get married. That's a stupid ass reason to do anything. Mm -hmm is that people are pushing you into it. Don't let anyone push you in directions in your life that you don't want your life to go. It's your life, not theirs. They can fuck off, okay? And I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's your mother, your best friend, or even your partner. Right. Don't let anyone shove you into a corner when it comes to what's going to happen with your life. You're in charge of that. Take charge of it and fuck anyone who tries to stand in your way. Oh, and here's, here's one that I think is um, definitely... Uh, it's definitely a thing 
for evangelicals, especially those of us who were planning on going into the ministry. Don't get married if you're doing it to advance your professional goals, okay? We moved our wedding up several months because the powers that be at that sad excuse for a college that I went to led me to believe that it would be way easier for me to find a position before I graduated if I could tell these people that I was getting married immediately after I graduated. So we moved our date back from September to May, which in retrospect wasn't such a bad idea because the original date was September 11th. But yeah, uh, that would have been that would have been it would have been a little bit odd. But still, the reasons why we pushed the date up were ludicrous. Oh, sure. And it was a matter of me being able to sit in an interview and tell a pastor or a search committee that, well, I'm going to be married before I even show up at your doorstep because clearly a wedding band is going to keep me from fucking a (laughs) 16-year-old. Yeah, whatever. Um, We saw that more than once with Mm -hmm. some of the people that we went to school with too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't dive into marriage if you have trust issues. Because whether they are founded or unfounded, they're going to have a detrimental effect on the relationship. And you need to give it time to see if these things settle and see if you can reach a place of trust with that person where you can make that kind of a decision and be okay with it long term. And the only way to know that is to have long term patience with yourself and really, really move into that place before you say I do. Very, very important. You may want to not consider getting married if you like the way your life is right now, because guess what? Everything changes when you get Uh, married. Yes. I'm not even kidding. Emotionally and every otherwise, things change and they change drastically when you get married. So if you're in a comfortable place where you are in your life right now, where you are in your relationship with your partner, if you have one, where you're at with your job, if you don't want the boat rocked, then don't get married right now. And definitely don't get married if your partner is an abuser. This is a big problem. And people do it anyway because they get trauma bonded. And people convince themselves that they can change that person. They can Mm -hmm. make a better person out of them. That if I make this commitment to them, it'll mean something to them and they'll be better to me. Guess what? It's not going to happen. Once an abuser, always an abuser unless they get help. And even then, there's no guarantee that they're not going to lapse back into old habits. So you've got to keep that in mind. And again, this is a major, 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 major place where you have to let your intellect have the floor and not your emotions. Because believe me when I tell you, I know what it's like to be trauma bonded and in love with an abuser. And it is a really, really difficult, sad, just downright nasty place to be inside your own head. Okay. Don't put yourself in that place. I'm begging you, don't put yourself in that place. And certainly do not put yourself in a position where you are allowing someone else to look at you, especially if you're if you're female. If, do not put yourself in a position where you can allow a male abuser to see you as his property. And once he's got that ring on your finger, I promise you an abuser is going to see you as just that and very little more for the rest of your life. I've seen that too yeah. recently. Don't get married if you and your partner have mental or emotional issues that need dealing with. There's nothing wrong with having mental illness and being in a loving relationship with somebody, even in a marriage with somebody, if there is mental illness on both sides. But you damn well better be sure that you're both managing it the way that you should and managing it long term to the point where there is little question as to whether or not that maintenance will continue 
once you're married? How committed are you to being and staying well? How committed is your partner to being and staying well? These are things that you really, 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 really need to consider. And just a couple more here. Just a couple more that I think are, are definitely important. And there are even more bullet points in the show notes that you can look at. But I'm only going to comment on just a couple more here. It's probably not a great idea to get married if you don't get along with your partner's family. Because even though you might be in a situation where you only have to deal with these people a couple times a year around the holidays, mm. their influence is always going to be on your partner. And there are going to be things that will trickle into the relationship that can have you guys locking horns like crazy. And if there's outward animosity, if you are being treated poorly or on an abusive level by your partner's family, this is not something that is going to change. And regardless of how much your partner loves you, there's going to be a part of their brain that is always going to side with their family. Mm. And you've got to keep that in mind. Regardless of what it looks like they're doing on the outside to protect you and support you, it's always going to be at least a little bit in their mind to protect what's theirs. And that means their family. It's also not a good idea to get married if you just don't want to be alone. There are far better ways of establishing those companionship needs than committing yourself for the rest of your life to a single person. Because... If you enter your marriage that way, you clearly aren't thinking about all the things that you need to think about, because this is one thing that is, it's a major, major thing for a lot of people. And some people would prefer to be in a miserable marriage than in a lonely house by themselves. Mm -hmm. It kind of sucks, but I know that there are people out there who are in that position. So if that's your tendency, let me just make this small recommendation to you. Think about whether or not that decision is really going to make you happy. You won't be happy alone, but is it better to be unhappy with someone sitting on the couch across from you? Mm. And, you know, for me, I feel like that would be worse. Yeah. Being in a relationship with someone who you always feel like you're miles apart from and who just you may not even like that much, but at least they're there. No, you, you want something better than that. You deserve better than that. And I understand what it's like to be lonely. And I understand how much it can hurt when you feel alone, when you feel like there's there's no one around you that really gets you, understands you, or values your time, values your company. I get all of this. But getting married is not going to be the be-all, end-all solution to it. If you get married, it should be because that person has proven their ability to meet those needs in your life. Not that you're hoping for it or that you just think it's going to happen because you make the commitment, because that's not the way that it works. And just to put a cap on this conversation, married people are not statistically happier than single people. This is a lie that you're told from the pulpit all the time. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is you can be just as happy, feel just as fulfilled, feel just as secure in a relationship with a partner, whether you have that band of gold on your finger or not. So please keep that in mind. You're not likely to be happier just because you get married. Just a couple final takeaways here. These are the things that I, when I was going through all of those notes and all of those bullet points that jumped out at me as being the most significant. So if it seems a little repetitive, just bear with me. But I do think that these are things that you need to think about just a little bit more than average. 
first and foremost, the thing that jumped out at me and kept jumping out at me while I was preparing this episode is the fact that you should only ever consider marrying someone if you know that you are capable of monogamy. If that's going to be the playing field for the relationship, then make sure that you can play by the rules. And like I said before, it doesn't apply to as many people as society would like you to think it does or that society dictates it should. If you're not one of those people, then don't put another person through what they will go through when you can't handle that kind of a commitment. And you should also only really consider marrying someone if you have decided that it's a good match in terms of being able to help each other and have the benefits that we talked about in the beginning. Again, it doesn't necessarily have to be about love, but it absolutely needs to be about trust. If you're going to marry someone, then you need to know going in that you can trust them with your very life, because eventually it may be placed in their hands. Your health, your finances, and, and again, your life itself could be something that that person winds up having to manage. And you want the right person managing all of it. And your marriage doesn't have to be traditionally monogamous if you are getting married more for the legal benefits than for love in the first place. But if you decide to go this route, do please take the time to discuss the various details at length with your partner before you take the plunge. This is how I intend to conduct myself as part of this relationship. And this is how I expect to be treated. This is how I expect you to deal with these behaviors of mine, these tendencies of mine, my need to have these needs met. You know, all of these things need to be sorted through. Because again, there are plenty of poly people that I know that get married, but they have these conversations. And guess what? Oddly enough, their marriages by and large work mm -hmm. because they've taken the time to think about these things and communicate them. Honestly, that's one of the things that I love about poly is that the people that do it right are huge on the concept of communication. Yeah. And I think that that alone has taught me a lot. It's taught me the importance of having things out on the table and not making assumptions about people or what they're going to be in the relationship, which is why on that very first date that I was on a little while ago, we laid the whole atheism versus spirituality thing right out on the table at the very beginning. And it was a landmine yeah. to the relationship. But guess what? It's better than ignoring it and figuring out just how big a problem it would be down the road. And in the course of making the decision as to whether or not you're going to get married, definitely talk about things like each other's expectations of how the other partner is going to manage things overall. Is it going to be romantic or platonic? Does the other partner want a lover or just someone who assumes the role of the roommate or the friend with benefits? You know, someone who is going to be trustworthy as an executor or with power of attorney over your affairs. Talk about managing finances. Talk about your spending habits. If you're going to have joint accounts, it's just a tad bit important to know how your partner deals with money. That's going to be part of the equation, and you need to understand what each other's philosophy about money, how it's spent, and what else you do with it line up with each other. And yes, no matter how young you are, you need to talk with your partner about end-of-life wishes. What responsibilities and obligations will your partner have and what decisions are they allowed to make for you? 
Don't forget that your marriage could still end up in divorce and there go any benefits of doing this in the first place if it all just goes sour. Most of all, don't use getting married as an excuse to have sex. Sex works without wedding rings and if you break up, it's a lot less complicated without them. And for our newly minted ex-evangelicals, nothing you've heard about the concept of one flesh or that it devalues you as a human if you have sex outside of marriage has any basis in truth. It's all a crock of shit. And you need to start looking at it from that perspective because you were told those things by people who had the motivation of controlling you. Most people do not have the kinds of hangups that your average pastor would lead you to believe that they do when it comes to the concepts of love and sex. They just don't. And most people, honestly, out there in society today aren't going to give two shits whether you're married or not. You can be married, living together, or anything in between, and it's all good as far as most people out there are concerned. And that's true regardless of what religion they are, because there are plenty of evangelicals out there who display one thing on Sunday, but they're thinking the right things inside their head on certain levels. And this is one that a lot of people definitely think the right way about, even if outwardly they try and toe the line. And if that wasn't true, then guess what? My mother wouldn't be married right now because she would have been too freaked out by the whole Pauline principle about getting divorced and getting married while your spouse is still alive. And she did. And my father was alive for, I think, about the first 20 years of their marriage. So even the person sitting in the pew next to you thinks about this on average, on a more rational level than they will ever let on in the middle of a church service. Being partnered, cohabitating, and unmarried does not, does not carry the stigma that your pastor would like you to believe it does. So let that be the final takeaway on that subject. And just remember, as we wind things down, that the decision whether or not to get married is ultimately yours. I'm not here to influence you. I'm just here to tell you the way things are and give you things to think about. I'm not trying to talk you into it, and I'm not trying to talk you out of it. All I'm trying to do is get you to think about it. How many times have I used that phrase just in the course of the last hour or so? That's all I want you to do is think before you take any action, make any decision that's going to change the course of your life and can lead to difficulties that you don't need to be sidled with. Getting married is not necessarily a bad idea. It's just not always necessary. And it definitely isn't always a good idea either. The freedom to manage your relationships however you want is something that you should recognize and enjoy. Don't let other people make decisions that are going to steer the course of your life, especially not when that advice comes from behind a pulpit. Regardless of how your relationship looks, whether you decide to get married, whether you decide to stay single, whether you're partnered and never get married, it doesn't matter. The relationship is valid regardless of what it looks like. It's ethical, regardless of what it looks like and regardless of what any book or pastor wants to tell you. And there are unique benefits on both sides of this argument. Whether to or not to get married, there are clear and obvious benefits. The idea here is figuring out on which side of the meter your experience tends to gravitate. Eventually, you may decide that it's a good idea and you may never decide that it's a good idea. But one thing that you just need to keep in mind and understand is that whatever choice you make to enter into that kind of relationship or not, you have the final say. 
It's up to you to decide what's going to make you the happiest. It's up to you to decide what's going to be most beneficial for you. And sometimes that means getting married, but sometimes it means simply staying legally unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.